The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. And welcome to episode 22 of The Wizard Files, the special podcast interview series where we go behind the scenes with former staff members of Wizard Magazine. This time around, we have an elder statesman of the Wizard crew, despite the fact that he was just a kid when he began contributing the longest-running and most underappreciated feature in the Guide to Comics. It is our great pleasure to welcome to the show, Tom Palmer. How you doing, Tom? I'm doing all right. Thanks. Now, uh, Tom, in one of the identifier tags at the end of your column in issue 33, it states, quote, Tom Palmer Jr. is a freelance writer who has been described as grumpy in the morning, quirky, and prickly. So what are you feeling this morning? Um, I'm a little tired, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I got two, uh, two young kids, so they uh, disrupt the sleep schedule a little bit, so... Now, uh, just to start things off with a bit of context for our listeners, now, Jim McLaughlin responded to a letter in issue 38 stating that, quote, in any given issue, probably less than 10% of our readership wants to know about the Palmer's Pick subjects, but I think it's the best thing we do here. So, just to get your perspective of that era briefly, did you feel that the readers and your coworkers agreed with Jim's comments during your six years? of writing the column? Were you getting a lot of responses? You know, fairly early on in the, the life of the column, I did ask for people to write in because uh, I felt like I wasn't getting any response. I could tell by, you know, what was going on in the rest of the magazine and the letters column that, you know, people were asking about who could beat up Iron Man or whatever, you know. So, <laughs> you know, I did ask for people to write in letters and I got a pretty pretty decent response and nice letters of encouragement. A memorable one, I remember someone described it as uh, breath of fresh air in a room full of farts. <laughs> now to you was it just the passion would have kept you writing it anyway or did you feel like you know if i don't start hearing a little bit more uh... <laughs> yeah you know i would have kept doing it i figured honestly i didn't, I didn't know why <laughs> wizard kept me around because i you know i was young thought i was lucky to be writing the column to begin with and i knew that i wasn't writing stuff that people wanted to read about necessarily but i was passionate about the comics i liked and wanted people to know about them so that kept me going. And then, you know, it was good to hear that people were reading what I was writing. And then also people wrote in to suggest comics, which is neat. And then also people who were doing comics started writing in and sending me their stuff, which was actually very helpful for me. Yeah, I was going to say, this is going to be awesome as we get into that. But you talked about being young. So why don't we just for a minute step back, go to the beginning of your journey with comics and ask, how did comic books enter your life? What is your origin story? Uh, well, it's a little different than probably a lot of other people. My dad is also named Tom Palmer, and uh, he's a famous uh, inker who did a lot of work for Marvel. You know, he worked on the Avengers, X-Men with Neil Adams, wow. Tomb of Dracula and Doctor Strange with Gene Colan. He had a long run on the Star Wars comic at Marvel, and uh, he had a long run on The Avengers with John Buscema during the 1980s. So you know, I was born into that, so comics were always around when I was a kid. And you know, I didn't really get interested in them until I was a little bit older. I was a young kid, obviously, but it was like probably five or six. Just seeing what my dad was drawing and seeing it firsthand and you know, being around all that original art and 
obviously comics he was getting. So that was definitely neat. And I was, you know, I was a big, uh, big Star Wars fan as a kid. So that was kind of cool that he was drawing the Star Wars comics. That was kind of a little surreal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wonder, did you guys get to commiserate in the fact that inkers so often don't get the respect they deserve as is someone writing about small press comics? Not really, no. no. I never really, I don't think either of us made that connection. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just did your best at what you do. Yeah, yeah, right. So now, what then was the first non-superhero comics title then that you discovered from some small press or independent publisher that maybe turned you on to that? Yeah, it was kind of more of like a progression, I guess, I got older. So, you know, it was right around the time when Watchmen and Dark Knight were coming out. And I think once you read those books, it was kind of hard to go back to the regular Marvel or DC comics. So I still like comics and I was looking for something else that was kind of along that route of what Watchmen was doing and what Dark Knight was was doing. So the one that comes to mind is Cerebus. It was probably the first one that I remember picking up. And then um, you know, I also picked up 8-Ball and Hate, which were just starting, you know, like in the mid-80s. Picked up Yummy Fur and Taboo was a good comic because it was an anthology comic. And I had a lot of kind of mainstream guys who you know, started by Steve Bissett, who was working on Swamp Thing with Alan Moore. But then he was kind of unleashed to do all these the edit this horror anthology. And it was, you know, it was a good exposure to a lot of different different artists because they're all in one book. Yeah, and so when you were picking those books up, now, did you and your dad talk comics or was it just work to him? Like, how did he feel about kind of the change in, in the content and how comics were being presented? Was he of any interest as a fan himself or was it always just business? You know, he grew up with the, the EC comics in the 50s. Mm-hmm. So all the other stuff that wasn't superheroes was, that was comics to him too he didn't grow up with superhero books so you know that wasn't where his his passion was interesting yeah so right from the outset you know i as a kid i knew about the ec comics and you know how revolutionary those were and to know that there were other things than superhero comics out there now did he hold on to any of his comics that he read as a kid yeah he had he had all his comics from when he was a kid and uh you know they were, they were beat up <laughs> but there was a probably in the uh, might be off in the time period here but in the late 70s they started reprinting all the old ec comics in big black and white hardcover books so he had all those around so i was able to look at those and you know those are a little bit uh, easier to to read than his old comics which were kind of torn up and <laughs> tattered and well-loved and well-read. What was it like for you, you know, in the 80s and then early 90s as you're writing your column? What did you have to do to find these small press books? Uh, you know, going to conventions was a good help. You know, I was able to go to local conventions and stuff and pick things up. I did a lot of mail order because a lot of the small publishers, you know, it was kind of hard to find them in the comic shops sometimes. You had to write them directly and mail in a check and they would send the comics out to you. It was definitely like you'd have to hunt for them. And it was kind of the, it was kind of the thrill of finding these things sometimes that kind of made it a little bit more exciting yeah and did you find that having conversations at conventions and other places i mean were you like one of the few out there who say like hey have you read this new peter baggy book or whatever like is that how you pronounce his last name by the way uh, it's bag oh really <laughs> yeah. wow okay yeah. i never would have gotten that <laughs> But like, did you find that you kind of had to try to turn people on just in your regular life as you're having conversations to these small press books? You know, I had some friends that were into comics and we all kind of grew out of superhero comics at the same time. So it was kind of like we would recommend things to each other like, oh, did you see this book or oh, the new issue of 8-Ball came out? Did you check it out? You know, stuff like that. So it definitely helped you know form my opinions about what was good and what wasn't and what I would like to read. You know, I was still in high school when I started writing the column. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> wow. 
Wow. Okay. Well, let's get into that then. So what were the circumstances that led you to getting the gig writing Palmer's picks for Wizard, beginning with issue number six, wherein your your first subject there that you were covering was Neil Gaiman's Sandman, which at the time, <laughs> not the biggest book on the racks, and nowadays, revered. Yeah. So again, it's a very different story from a lot of other people who worked at Wizard. And it sounds really weird when I say it out loud, you know, because of who my dad was, he was friends with other comic creators. And Walt Simonson and, and Louise Simonson lived nearby. And I would go over to their house to help out just cleaning up and organizing all the books and comics and papers they had because they were very busy. <laughs> and uh, they loved books and loved comics. So there was a lot of stuff in their house to get organized and put away. So one of the weekends that I was there helping out, Garib and his dad were uh, visiting Walt and Weezy to take some photos of them for an interview that was going to be running in Wizard. And Weezy, I don't know why she did this, but she said, if you guys are looking for a writer, there's a, a young writer in our house today. So Garib introduced himself and gave me his business card. He said, oh, you know, if you have any uh, any ideas of something you want to write for the magazine, you know, let me know, call me up, and maybe we can work something out. So I went home and scratched my head, and you know, I, he gave me a couple issues of Wizard to check out. And I kind of flipped through them. I was kind of looking for something that wasn't in the magazine. That was something that would, I would want to check out. And something I felt the magazine was lacking. And the thing that I thought of was that most of the stuff in the magazine was talking about the comic characters or the art. So I figured maybe need something that focuses on the writers and the other half of the creative team. So that's why I came up with focusing on Sandman, because I figured it was published by DC. So it was easy to get a hold of if you wanted to read it. And it was uh, more focused on the writer and, you know, still had cool art and some great artists on the comic, but it was definitely writer driven. I wrote something up and used my high school writing abilities to the fullest extent, sent it in and they accepted it and they sent me a check. (laughs) And uh, I kept writing, and they didn't, they didn't turn me down anymore, so that was great. <laughs> I mean, my mind is still reeling over here at the convergence of the talent. You know, your dad, Walt Weezy, Garib, and his dad, like, just like, all these people coming together. Now, had you were you aware at all of the, the Seamus Family comic shop or any of that? Were you close enough to have shopped there, or were they kind of coming in from out of town? I wasn't aware of the shop. It was a good distance away from where I lived. It was kind of like the Simonson's house was maybe 20 minutes away and then the comic shop was 20 minutes away from there so you know it wasn't a place that I went to regularly so I wasn't really aware of it okay slightly off topic but just Garib's dad we don't hear mentioned very often did you have much interaction with him after that day like do you recall him as being a character that was in the picture at all no maybe I ran into him again at one of the um, the Chicago conventions but I don't remember seeing him around the office or anything like that <laughs> okay I was just curious yeah because he seems like kind of this fan him, you know, it's like, yes, they were the, the Seamus family had the comic shop, but they don't talk about the dad as often. Right, right. Yeah, I know that they, um, they had a pretty big art collection and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So after that initial one that you said in your mind kind of took a little bit of planning, okay, I can kind of reach out, get people's attention with a DC Vertigo title, which I don't even, it wasn't even Vertigo yet at that point, yeah, right? Yeah, Vertigo so, wasn't around yet. Yeah. yeah. So how did you then go about selecting your feature topic every month? Like, were they all from your personal library or like you said some people started sending things in but did the editorial team start suggesting titles at some point or were you kind of the lone person in the office that had a lot of that knowledge because then are like pat mccallum for example worked in the seamus family comic store was he a proponent of these types of books it was all me you know those are all books that i that i read and i was passionate about and you know people did send in their stuff later on in the run sometimes it would be things that would catch my eye it would be helpful in that sense because i would know this comic is going to come out four months from now 
and that will time perfectly with the power spics that's going to be in that, that issue of Wizard when that, that comic is on sale. So it's helpful more of a, a timing thing. That might be something that I was already was already on my radar. But yeah, when it came, came to the month-to-month column, that was all me. It was all stuff that I picked out. And actually, every month I had to send in the comics that I was writing about because they didn't have any of the artwork at the wizard office. If I didn't send anything in, they'd have no artwork to run with the column. <laughs> so I had to send my, my comics in, hope that I would get them back. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it'd be hard to replace those. Yeah, they actually they actually had to replace a couple of them because they, they got lost. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about this, though, because you're in high school at this point, and you're mm-hmm. submitting articles to Wizard to be published. How would you describe those early days? Like, did it feel like a big deal? Did you recognize that Wizard was getting, you know, a lot of circulation, so there are a lot of people reading it? Was it a, Did it matter to you, or is it more just like, wow, anybody's paying me to do this? Awesome. Yeah, you know, the, the paying me was kind of a neat thing. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a lot at the beginning. I think it was maybe $25 for the first one. So, <laughs> but you know, writing these things in, in high school, which you know, I was, I, I was a senior in high school when I started, it was kind of strange to be doing that as you're finishing up your, your last year of high school and trying to make sure you pass everything. And then, Oh, I have a deadline. <laughs> I have to write the two pages in this magazine. <laughs> but you know, when I started out, wizard wasn't what it became. It was kind of transforming and still finding out what kind of magazine it wanted to be. So I think it was kind of a good time for me to start doing what I was doing because the magazine was kind of still forming and deciding what direction it wanted to go in and you know what the magazine was going to look like. So by the time it kind of became like a, a real professionally run magazine, probably maybe two years in into the run, you know, I had a pretty good feel of what I wanted to do with the column and how I was approaching it. I think the column and the magazine kind of matured at the right pace together. Yeah, and speaking of which, is, is there a moment or is there just a period of time where you began to notice that Wizard was becoming influential, you know, that you were reaching maybe more people than you might have thought and how did it affect your output in the column if at all sounds like not very much but was there a moment where you're like wow this is kind of getting to be a thing you know they started paying more so that was a, that was a good indication <laughs> but you know after about the first year you could kind of tell that the magazine was gaining a foothold and you know, it was right around the time that image was ramping up so it all kind of converged and i think all those things kind of helped the magazine gain readership and then i think right around after that first year or so was when i kind of put that call out for people to write in and that's when I noticed like, oh, there are people reading this magazine. And then the people were writing in and they were reading what I was writing, which is kind of a weird thought that you're writing something in your in your bedroom and other people around the country or around the world are seeing it. Related to that, a couple years into the run, I had a friend who um, was in college and he took a, a summer to go abroad and he was, I think he was in Australia, but then he would travel around in that part of the world. He said he was in Vietnam. He was in some market and he saw a copy of Wizard there on a, wow. on a magazine rack. And uh, <laughs> he picked it up and he was trying to tell people in the store that, oh, I have a friend who writes in this magazine. And they're just staring at him because they didn't speak English. <laughs> <So> <laughs> he looked like this crazy guy who was pointing at this magazine for some reason. So <laughs> <laughs> but that was, you know, that was kind of neat to hear that Wizard was stretching around the world like people were seeing this. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Now, let's talk about this then. So as the company is growing, you know, I know originally things were kind of be, being run out of the Seamus home. Then they got one office that was a little bit more professional and then they 
they moved to a bigger office. So were you operating eventually out of the wizard offices or were you always kind of on an island just sending in your column? Well, for the majority of it, I was either at home or in college and I would send my things in. I never never went out to the office until I actually started working there later on. And, and who, who were you in contact with mostly then when you're sending things in and getting feedback or comments? Like, was there much of that? Yeah, you know, it was whatever editor they were they had assigned to the column. So I think Pat was one of the early ones. Mark Wilkowski was another one of the, the editors later on. And then Scott Beatty was one of the editors I was in contact for a while. And he's actually the one who offered me a job working at Wizard. Oh, now just curious, because you also said that you were starting to get correspondence either from people who wanted their comics featured in your column, or I'm assuming you probably also got contact from people that happened to read what you were writing about them. So was there ever any uh, drama or anything related to dealing with the more, you know, eccentric trick indie creators people that you know because I, I will just say personally i've met a few people that you know have self-published and done their own things and uh, a lot of times they are a little more you know quirky as was you were described you know <laughs> earlier you know they, they have a little bit going on there and sometimes they're maybe not quite as talented as they think they are but they are trying to convince you that they have something to share so do you ever run into anything like that you know i wouldn't write about someone unless i thought they were talented so you know i don't remember anyone getting upset that I didn't write about them. The only thing that I ran into on a regular basis was in the indie comic world or the alternative comic world, Wizard wasn't cool and Wizard was kind of like the enemy. So a lot of times it was more of a reluctance of like, why are you calling me from this magazine? Why do you want to write about me? But then a lot of times I found out later after I kind of called them up and interviewed them and, and wrote about them, they actually got a good response from people who read about them in Wizard. And I would I would always make sure to like put in an address where someone could either write to them if they were publishing themselves or write to the company that published them. Because I knew a lot of these comics weren't easy to find. So a lot of times later on, you'd hear like, oh, you wrote about my comic in Wizard. And I got so many orders after that happened. You know, thanks for doing that. So that was kind of neat. If you're asking about controversy, though, the only big one that, that happened was when I wrote about Colleen Duran and uh, A Distant Soil. It was a, a big, uh, I'll say it was a, a screw up, but something happened with my the column that I wrote. Someone in editorial changed it. And the change that they, that they made brought up this whole disagreement that she had with her old publisher. Yeah, Richard Peeney. Yeah, go back and forth in the letters column for like many months they're just kind of right. sniping at each other like eventually she's just like i wish he would just leave me alone that yeah. was part of her letter yeah that was we, we haven't covered it heavily on the show but as we've been researching we're just like wow this was really ongoing yeah you know the one thing that got left out of the magazine is that whatever i wrote wasn't what i wrote originally so. the truth can be told now yeah yeah you know the change that they made in editorial i think is the thing that set this whole thing off so you know i kind of got thrown in the middle of it and when it happened, I was a little nervous. I was like, oh, is this wizard going to can me over this? Am I going to get fired over this? But, you know, editorial assured me, like, no, it's not a big deal. You know, we're just going to print, like, a, an apology and, and then let it go from there. And then, you know, it, it did kind of stretch on over the next couple issues in the letters column. And this is, this is, like, obviously way before the internet and social media. So this is something that would have, like, probably taken a couple of days of people going back and forth on each other on Twitter and then they would have all blown over. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's just so interesting to read that the, the pages of Wizard where that was essentially, you know, people who weren't on the few electronic message boards that were out mm -hmm. there that was the public forum and yeah the uh, the creators were definitely making use of it now one yeah. thing i have to say you know so i was a younger kid when i was reading so obviously for me i was there for the mainstream things and i wasn't reading your column as heavily 
until I was growing up, right? You grow into those things, like you say, you know, you start with your superheroes, you get into that. But one in particular that I remember being highlighted early on that I eventually picked up was Mike Allred's Madman. And so I remember you covering it. And then years later, when, yeah, I was kind of fading away from all the Marvel DC, you know, image stuff. I was just like, you know, I remember that Madman comic they were always talking about. And and Tom Palmer talked about it a couple times. And then I started picking it up. And I just, it's a, you know, a lifelong love since those later teenage years. Were there certain creators that you were able to either interview or highlight and then they gained maybe even more mainstream success that you recall? You said people got a lot of orders, but did you, are there anybody that you stayed in contact with or you kept hearing from over the years? Well, I wrote about Brian Bendis. (laughs) Ah, okay. It was later on in the run of the column. He started out doing black and white indie comics that he would write and draw. So I wrote about his stuff very early on in his, his career. I wrote about Ed Brubaker when um, he was still doing indie comics. So those are two guys who definitely went on to much bigger things. Yeah. So that was kind of neat. And then a lot of the other people I wrote about kind of gained a lot of acceptance and more readers when um, the whole bookstore graphic novel thing happened in the early 2000s. So like uh, Chris Ware, Jimmy Corrigan, which was a huge, huge uh, bookstore success uh, when that came out as a graphic novel. Charles Burns, who did uh, Black Hole, which is another huge bookstore graphic novel. So that was kind of neat to see like, oh, you know, I wrote about these guys when they were just starting to write these graphic novels and they weren't finished at the time. But, you know, as the 90s wrapped up, they stuck to their guns and finished up their comics and got them published by book publishers. And lo and behold, people actually do want to read 200 paid comics that aren't about superheroes. That was kind of neat. <laughs> so now uh, on the flip side, is there a book that you recall highlighting during your tenure? Or if you had your druthers, you maybe would have mentioned it even more often in the column that despite your best efforts, just never quite took off that you just felt deserved more attention? Is there somebody you always go back to and say, this person's work was fantastic? You know, I don't think it was anyone that got that overlooked. There were a lot of comics in the 90s that kind of didn't finish, you know, because of the market. You know, there, there was that big market implosion where a lot of comic stores closed and a lot of places were going out of business. So there was a good number of self-published books that had good intentions and great ideas that weren't able to finish their runs. The big one for me was Tyrant, which was uh, Steve Bissett's comic. That was going to be the life story of a dinosaur from birth to death. Yes, we, we talked about that on the show, and I will say we, we mocked it a bit. It was just the way that Steve described the project in his interview was a little too <laughs> highbrow for us, but you would say that that definitely was something that was worth checking out. Oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's he got four issues into it, and I think he planned to do about 60 issues, but it was a great idea, I thought, and he researched the hell out of it and put all his effort into the art, and it was, you know, amazing to look at, and, you know, he's a great writer, aside from being a great artist, and, you know, it's still a great comic to read, even if you're not into the comic, the rest of the comic is filled out with articles about dinosaurs and monster movies and books about dinosaurs and uh, notes about where he's getting the research that went into the comic. So it was worth the $3 that you had to spend for each issue back then, and it still is if you, I think you'd probably find them for a pretty good price today. Yeah, I'd imagine so. And let me ask you this too. Is there a difference between the term alternative press comics or independent comics or small press comics or self-published comics? Like, are those all very different tiers or are they just different names for the same style of publishing? You know, I think people throw the terms around kind of loosely, but there are, I think there are like some 
some distinctions between it. So like a self-published comic is obviously something you're publishing yourself, but that has nothing to do with the genre that it is. So you can self-publish a superhero comic, you can self-publish a humor comic, you can self-publish a horror comic, it doesn't matter. I always thought indie press was kind of like a blanket term. So that could mean, you know, a small publisher, something that isn't Marvel or DC. So like Dark Horse or... I mean, even Image, they had a lot of money behind them, but they yeah. were technically independent. Right, exactly. So that was that was why I would consider to be independent. Alternative was, I think, a term to me kind of meant non-traditional comics. So you had stuff from Fantagraphics and Drawn and Quarterly, a lot of the underground publishers who were still around, like Last Gasp. So those were generally black and white, more creator-driven. So it was usually just one person doing it, writing and drawing it. And a lot of times those, to me, were the ones that kind of spoke to me more because that was one person doing this comic and obviously they weren't doing it for the money so they were passionate about what they were drawing and usually they had something to say you know at that time in the 90s that was, was a lot of cool stuff going on with movies and music and I think a lot of the, the similar stuff was happening in comics in the alternative scene so there was a lot of crossover with like comics like Hate and 8-Ball with a lot of the movies that were out at the time and a lot of the music that was going on you know Hate started out in Seattle where it was set and the whole grunge thing kind of blew up at the same time you know 8-Ball one of the stories that happened later on in the run of that was uh, Ghost World which got got made into a movie yeah. later on. So to me, that was all kind of similar about what was going on artistically in the 90s. That was the same thing as going on in comics. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting to, to consider. And so now, as we're talking about you know, the next step of your career, I mean, this is interesting. So you mentioned that you eventually get a call that says, hey, how would you like to come work for Wizard full-time, not just contribute a column? So what was that move like? You know, I'm assuming you're going out to the Congers office now and you're going to be set up there working. So talk to us a little bit about like what was the experience of coming into the office and being there on a regular basis? You know, I finished up college. That uh, was 96. So I didn't start working in the office until 97, early uh, 1997. But my editor over at Wizard was uh, for Palmer's Picks with Scott Beatty and he was going to be switching over to be the editor of Toy Fair, which was one of the new magazines that Wizard was launching. So he was looking for someone to help him out and um, you know be the assistant editor on the magazine with him. And uh, you know he liked working with me. Thought you know I was a decent writer. You know I think he told me like oh you know your column's the one column that I don't really have to do much when it comes in the office. So he trusted me as a writer and uh, we had a pretty good working relationship. So you know he gave me a call and said you know if you want to come in and do an interview and we'll see if we can get you a job. So uh, that all worked out and I. Uh, started working there. And my first week working at Wizard was also the same week as the International Toy Fair, F-A-I-R, not F-A-R-E. Yeah. <laughs> it was the big, uh, the big show in New York City where all the toy companies come and they show off their toys that are going to be coming out for the rest of the year. And it was really just a show for the, the toy stores to uh, see what they're going to buy and see what they're going to throw their money at. And, you know, there's a limited press presence there. So if you had press credentials, you were able to get in and go to the showrooms and see all the presentations and all the people dressed up in funny costumes to show you the Power <laughs> Rangers toys. That was my first week on the job was going there to, uh, you know, going to drive into the office of Congress early in the morning so we could drive down to New York City together and uh, get into the toy fair before like I think nine o'clock. So we had to leave at some crazy hour early in the morning. Me, I'm used to staying up late and, <laughs> and sleeping in. And then now I got to wake up at like six in the morning to, you know, go to work. <laughs> that was kind of like a whirlwind first week of work to beat it doing that. And funny story from that, the uh, first day there at the uh, toy fair, we all jammed in an elevator, all the, the uh, people from Wizard, really small elevator. And we go up a couple floors and then the elevator just stops and we're stuck between floors. And we're all kind of staring at each other and like... <laughs> worrying and then 
took a couple minutes, but eventually the elevator started moving again. But it was kind of a freaky experience to be uh, stuck in an elevator for five minutes. I mean, were you a toy collector? Was it of interest to you? Uh, I wasn't a collector at that point. You know, I had, obviously, I, I played with toys when I was a kid. And I still had all my old uh, Star Wars toys, my Transformers and G.I. Joe toys. Yeah, I definitely had a, an interest there. It wasn't something I was like a huge toy collector, but I don't think the uh, that market was really there yet. Yeah. I think the big stuff then was the new Star Wars toys that were coming out and uh, the Toy Biz Marvel things. McFarlane was still early on in his, his company, so he was probably the big new thing that was kind of changing the industry at that point. Right, yeah. Now, when you got back to the office then, how did your role start to evolve? Because there, obviously there wasn't a toy fair every week for you to cover. So what type of projects then did they put you on? And uh, you, you were still writing your column at the time too, I assume. Yeah, yeah. So when I started working there, they said, you know, you can still write your column. We'll still pay you as a freelancer uh, in addition to your salary. So I was able to do that. You know, I just would do it at night at home. During the day in the office, I'd kind of pitched in everywhere in the magazine. We were still kind of planning out what was going to be in the magazine. So we had a lot of meetings early on to figure out uh, what type of articles we wanted and what kind of regular features we wanted in the magazine. So just to ask here, who are some of the voices you remember in those rooms uh, piping up the most? Or who are some of the personalities that jump out to you from that era? Well, early on, it was just me, Scott, and uh, Pat McCallum. Maybe Doug was involved a little bit. But yeah, I mean, it was mostly just the three of us. And then after we were there, we were trying to round out the staff. So we hired Tom Root as copy editor. But that was, you know, we started to plan out most of the magazine by that point. So it was still a pretty small crew then. Yeah, they just did two two specials for Toy Fair that, that Doug was in charge of. And then the, I guess they were successful enough. You know, they had enough people that were going to willing to advertise that they figured we could do this as a monthly. So I think there was still like a, an untested market. Didn't want to go full force with a big, huge staff of a magazine. We were able to use the wizard promotions and the wizard designers and everything. So it was still, they were still part of the staff also. But you're saying that you were very much being involved then on the Toy Fair side as that was developing? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so for you then, how did you feel going from, okay, well, I kind of live my life. I submit a column every month to I'm in the office. I got to take these meetings. My voice, you know, has to be heard on some level. I have to have opinions. Like, did you gel with that? Did that work out for you? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> you kind of had to learn on the job because it was kind of a different, a different mindset from, you know, writing by yourself and then having to be in an office and, you know, deal with office politics and, you know, the distractions of being in a room with someone else as you're trying to concentrate and, and write and they're shooting a Nerf gun at you. and <laughs> <laughs> Definitely took some getting used to, but I think having that creative energy around you too would it gave you a lot of things to, to think about and to bounce ideas off of. So that was definitely helpful. And, and speaking of which, were you present for any of the uh, the office pranks or any of the shenanigans that went on? Can you recall any of those? I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about them. I think most of them were printed in the magazine yeah, eventually. I'm, I'm allowed to say which one I was, ones I was involved in, but uh, I did take part in quite a few of those. <laughs> Wait, which one do you think is the safest, but that you're well, most proud the of? One, the one I do want to take credit for is filling up the cups of water. Yes. I think, I don't want to say this for sure, but I think writing out April Fool's with the food coloring might have been my idea, but I'm not 100% certain about that because my memory is a little faded. <laughs> however many years later, but uh, I definitely, uh, I, I can say I was part of that one. So give us this though, because we, we haven't delved as deeply as we could. How did these 
pranks evolve with like pat just pull in a few people to a room and be like hey guys i got an idea we gotta do this like you're doing this you're doing this or like how how did you get the planning together for that type of stuff it was just kind of something like hey we're gonna do this are you around be like okay sure sounds fun <laughs> hey tom are you in or are you out yeah yeah that's <laughs> Because obviously, you know, now you're in the office, there's there's you know, a pretty small crew, as you said. So we have to ask you now, Tom, the question we ask of everybody, someone else who may or may not have been in the office very often, Garib Seamus, cool or fool? Uh, well, you know, the guy gave me my job, so I'm, I'm not going to call him a fool, definitely. <laughs> but when he was in the office, did you ever have much interaction with him? Did you see him coming by and giving input or anything like that? Yeah, you know, working at Toy Fair, he was definitely involved. You know, the big thing was the covers of the magazine, so he wanted to make sure that those were accomplishing what they were supposed to accomplish. <laughs> there was always a lot of back and forth about what was going to be featured on the cover and what the copy was on the cover, because you also had the polybag magazines that would have stuff printed on the polybags that was always a concern of like how are we going to word things and you know where are those going to go and so he was very involved in the presentation of the magazine on the rack yeah. to sell it okay right right Right. Interesting. Okay. So by the time you are ready, you know, let's say you're, you're going to close up shop with issue number 74 is your final Palmer's Picks. That was October of 1997. So sounds like pretty soon after you got into the office. And in that article, you cited the fact that Wizard was giving more coverage to, quote, small press books and full-length articles in other parts of the magazine. You know, as a reason, your column was perhaps becoming maybe a little bit redundant or just it, there was already coverage happening. And then you said there were a lot of other more boring reasons <laughs> that you weren't going to get into. Well, I didn't want to end it. <laughs> okay, well, there's the first that. part. <laughs> yeah, so it was kind of presented to me as they were going to have more small press coverage in the magazine, which were they were starting to do. And they felt that I would, should focus more on working at Toy Fair and focus my energies on that, which seemed fair to me at the time. But the whole premise of, oh, there's more, more, more coverage of you know non-mainstream stuff in the magazine only lasted a couple months from what I remember. And then it kind of faded away. And, you know, at that time in the, in the industry, there really wasn't much acceptance of stuff that wasn't Marvel or DC or Image. So, I think a lot of those books that were out there still kind of needed that help of having, you know, two pages in a high circulation magazine to help them uh, find their, their readership. So, yeah, and one of the other things that was going on in the office is that there was a bit of a, I guess it was belt tightening. They wanted to have people who were working at the magazines, they were on staff in the magazines to write the features in the magazines instead of paying someone freelance money who was also employed by the magazine. So, you know, if you were working at Inquest, they wanted you to every day come in there and write stuff for Inquest, not go home at night and write an article for Wizard. Mm. So I think it was also one of the other uh, the other factors in closing up the column. Now, I, I will say, according to a reader in issue 39 of Wizard, they said, quote, if Palmer's picks was ever to be canceled, Wizard could no longer claim to be the guide to comics. So it said, you, you look at that, it says for the next decade or so of the magazine's life, the editorial staff were essentially living a lie according to that reader <laughs> right. so how did you then continue to participate in the wizard line of magazines it sounds like you were mainly at toy fair then and what were you doing then towards your final days working for the company one thing that's occurred to me if i could back up wizard did eventually kind of have like another i forget the name of it but they had did have another column that was indie focused and that was written by someone on staff and wizard was able to control who was being covered in that column. And when I was writing Palmer's Picks, 
they weren't they weren't able to tell me who to write about mm. you know so i think that was also another uh you know thing that kind of played into the the desire to close up the column people were advertising the magazine and they wanted to have coverage for those comics that were being advertised and a lot of times i would see them and be like i'm not gonna write about this <laughs> you know this isn't something that i'm interested in reading yeah so like when, i was gonna ask something like you know the bad girl era of comics i don't think those were appearing in palmer's picks no no not at all you know there were other small press books that would be willing to advertise and i would see some of them and i could tell that it wasn't worth being written about it wasn't something that i would want to read <laughs> So I think later on, Wizard decided, you know, we need to write about these comics again, and these are the ones we need to write about because they're advertising with us, or we want to build a, build a relationship with this guy because he's going to be doing something at Marvel. Or... Yeah, because later on, you know, like five or six years down the road from that point, I know that the people that were eventually running the Wizard website that we've talked to have said that then they were trying to put the focus on web comics. You know, like that kind of became the new independent voice of comics they were trying to push and, mm -hmm. and you know give a, an opportunity to get the spotlight here and there so yeah so that's interesting they kind of always seem to be internally a group or a person that want to help out those groups that don't have a voice or don't have the money to advertise to get noticed so well yeah yeah i mean a lot of times the dark secret is that advertising is kind of what drives what content is covered in the magazines yeah like we just covered a wizard issue 37 and it is like wall to wall rob liefeld and if you look at at the previous issues, he had been buying like five or six page ads for, you know, the return of Youngblood and all this yeah. type of stuff, you know, so it's like, obviously he had a lot of influence because he oh, got yeah. like John Byrne covers nixed in mm -hmm. favor of a Youngblood cover, even though he had one the next month already scheduled, you know? Like, yeah, so, you, would, you would open the magazine and the first five pages or six pages would be advertisements from you know, someone like Rob or someone that image. Yeah. You know, you'd have to, you have to flip like a good number of pages before you got to the table of contents, which was insane. <laughs> yeah. Like, see, it sounds like at that point, maybe the passion behind Palmer's picks maybe didn't transfer as heavily to your work at Toy Fair. So what were your final days at Wizard? Like how many years did you stay on? What kind of led to your eventual departure? Yeah. So I was at Toy Fair probably, I don't remember the exact issue number, but I was, somewhere in the thirties. So I was there for about three years. You know, I made my way up to being editor of the magazine and, you know, stuff was starting to change again around the office. A lot of office politics going on. Again, there's a lot of belt tightening because it was late nineties, early two thousands by that point. I think it was, I think it was 2000 when I left. So the, you know, the comic market, the direct market wasn't in great shape at that point. And uh, I think wizard was starting to feel the pinch a little bit. I wasn't happy anymore. So I decided to quit <laughs> and you know, put some feelers out there and ended up at uh, DC Comics as an assistant editor on the Superman books. Oh, very cool. Very yeah. cool. Now, was your dad long retired by this point? No, I mean, he's he's still working now. You know, he doesn't work as much, but uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, but at that point, he, was, he spent most of his time working at Marvel. So, OK, that's what I was. I was wondering if you guys ever got to work together professionally then at DC. Yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, as assistant editor and the editor I was working with was like, oh, call your dad and get him to ink this cover. It'd be kind of cool. So that happened once. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty neat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was neat. So then as you're in the actual world of comics publishing at that point, how did you observe or participate when it came to Wizard and seeing their coverage and the things that they were doing? Like, what was your observation of that era? You know, working at DC, there was kind of like a bit of a, a stain on me because I worked at Wizard. You know, people kind of looked at me kind of like, oh, what is he doing here? <laughs> you know, because at that point, Wizard was kind of like, you know, they would make fun of books and <laughs> kind of had a reputation of, uh, 
you know, not taking things seriously or they would piss off people. Um, so there were some people at the office or some crazy you would talk to who were kind of like, you know, kind of turned their nose up at the, the idea of wizard. So that was kind of interesting to see it from the other side, because you're, when you're in the office, you're kind of like, oh, this is cool. This makes sense. Like, of course, you're going to make fun of this comic. or You're going to, you know, trash this creator or something. And then when you're outside of it, you kind of see like, oh, well, maybe this wasn't the best way to do that. You know, if you had a criticism of this comic, maybe you shouldn't do it that way. You should try a different way of doing it. Yeah. You're not thinking it's a person's livelihood. It's just like, this is the joke around the office. This exactly. is what we do. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a little eye-opening to see it from the other side like that. Now, though, you have begun to archive your old Palmer's Picks columns on the web, which is just an amazing project. So talk to us about that. What led to you starting that, and how can people access uh, these important pieces of wizard history if they don't have their physical copies anymore? It's, uh, it's easy. It's palmerspicks.com. Hey! <laughs> you know, actually... I bought the domain name, I think, like in 2010 or something like that. And I always thought it would be kind of neat just to put that stuff up there as like a resume or just kind of like a something to keep it alive because Wizard didn't really have much web presence and didn't really uh, have any archives of their old material. So yeah. I thought it would be kind of a neat resource. But I never really had the time to get around to it. And, you know, honestly, I thought how many people would want to see it. But then... I think it was fall of 2016, I got approached by this guy, Dave Nuss, who uh, was a small press publisher, and he'd heard about this comic book festival in uh, Columbus that was put on by Jeff Smith, the creator of Bone. Yeah. And it's called uh, Cartoon Crossroads Columbus. They were affiliated with Ohio State University, and because of the, the university affiliation, they were going to have a conference where people could submit papers about a topic. And the topic that year for the festival was creating a canon of great comic works. So publisher Dave Nuss, you know, reached out to me because he had read my columns when he was a kid when I was writing in Wizard. And, you know, he pointed out, like, that was the thing that led him to read all these offbeat comics and find a, a passion for those comics and led him to be a publisher. And he wanted to write about Palmer's picks for a paper to just submit to this conference uh, at this festival. And, you know, would I be willing to sit down with him and, and talk to him about writing Palmer's picks? So I was like, oh, sure. Sounds cool. You know, I was like... Not the thing I would think would happen after uh, writing a column and having to let it go and kind of forgetting about it. So, you know, once he, he did that, he submitted the paper and they accepted it and he was able to present it at the festival. And that kind of kind of kicked me in the butt a little bit. I was like, well, you know, maybe this is a good time to start uh, maybe archive these old columns and dig out some of my old papers and stuff that I saved from research and development of all the different columns and everything. So I went ahead and found all the old files that I sent over to Wizard before they were edited and scanned in my old issues of Wizard and uh, started putting them up on the web. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's so awesome. Yeah, because there's, you know, there's a few scattered issues around that other people have scanned and we've we've shared them when we put up the episodes, but we're getting to the point in our run where those are going to be fewer and far between. And so we've actually considered as well as kind of a maybe a companion to what you're doing is creating an actual Wizard archive that can be available publicly so that people can see all the work you guys did. That's so awesome that you're doing that. So... As you're now kind of looking back and reflecting on those pieces you put together all that time ago, how would you describe then the legacy of Wizard now that we are in the 30th anniversary year since it launched? You know, it's kind of got a difficult legacy, I think, you know, because a lot of people didn't like Wizard when it was coming out. But obviously a lot of people did because it you know, had a pretty good circulation for most of its run. In Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, all around the world. <laughs> so, you know, there were people who loved the magazine, and I think there were people who didn't like it and were very vocal about that. But 
you know, I think a lot of the stuff that's in the magazine has kind of come back around and people are paying more attention to it. And as they're getting older, remembering the fun stuff that they read in the magazine and some of the cool features that were in there and, you know, some of the different stuff that they tried to do in the magazine. And um, like I know personally for myself, uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of young indie comic artists out there who have told me like, you know, that was a huge influence on them was reading what I was writing every month. And they were kind of at that age where they were getting tired of the superhero stuff and looking for something different and you know luckily there was two pages where someone was writing about eight ball or martial law or rick beach something that they needed at that time in their life and kind of kept them as a comics fan and and uh led them down the path to becoming an artist themselves so that's kind of neat to think that something you were writing in your bedroom or in your college dorm would influence someone become a cartoonist is kind of crazy something you don't think about when you're writing it yeah you can't beat that that's fantastic that's uh that's a validation that just keeps on giving so that's yeah, wonderful right. so tom you know aside from palmerspicks.com that's palmerspicks.com uh where <laughs> can people find you online if they want to get in touch uh you know i'd say check the website i'm also on facebook um and uh I'm on Twitter, but I don't really use it that much. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we want to thank you so much for being a part of this and sharing your stories. Yeah, thanks for thinking of me. Wow, a lot that maybe you didn't know about the guy who was covering those independent comics. And there's probably a lot we don't know about the stories of the other wizard staffers. So if you're out there listening, we want to hear from you. Of course, reach out to us at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. You can send us an email to wizardscomicspod at gmail.com. And a special thank you goes out to the guys over at Dollar Bin Bandits. Yes, that's the dollar bin bandits podcast you can find it on youtube at dollar bin bandits they actually pointed us to tom palmer's facebook profile page so that we could get in contact with him to set up this interview so just wanted to give them a big thumbs up and high five for helping us get this arranged it was a great conversation Also, I'm excited to tell you that next time around, we're breaking up the boys club with a gal who was very involved in the look of Wizard Magazine for many, many years. Yes, Arlene So will be joining us, and it's going to be a great conversation. Again, you've probably wondered, what was it like working with all those crazy guys in the office? Well, she is going to tell us all about it, and she was there for many iterations of what Wizard was, and so I hope that you will look forward to that and then coming up in august i will tease just a little bit more here you may be hearing from some of the folks that we've talked to on the wizard files again yes but in a very different and exciting format i will tease you with that for now and when the final announcement comes i hope you will be ready for it because august is the 30th anniversary of wizard magazine and we are celebrating in a big way so until next time we're closing the files This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.